You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. On this episode of Radio Free Humanity, Andrew and I will talk about a defense of Marx's law of the tendential fall in the rate of profit that we advanced several years ago now in response to a criticism of Marx's law by Michael Heinrich. Our defense of Marx was criticized by another paper by someone named Frederick H. Pitts, and we are going to respond to uh, Pitts's criticism and also just go into the, the paper itself. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to begin with some discussion of current events. So for this current events section, we were going to talk about Mr. Potato Head or Dr. Seuss, but Andrew convinced me we should talk about the American Rescue Plan. I do not want the money in hand. I do not want it, (laughs) Sam, I am. Were you surprised, Andrew, when you saw what was in this package? Well, yeah, we had some inkling of what was in it, but then you look at the, the actual numbers and all of it together, and especially the child tax credit numbers, uh, it's, it's just kind of un- un- unbelievable in, in magnitude. You know, I haven't seen anything like this since the Great Society back in the 60s, and I don't remember much of that, but uh, yeah, it, it's big. Just to give people a, a sense of the magnitude of the figures, you have like a family of four, with, with two kids, it differs a little bit, the age of the kids and so forth. But unless you reach the very highest levels of income, they're going to get about $9,000 from the government this year. It's amazing. It's a lot of money. I mean, you know, most of that is, is, is temporary. The expanded child tax credit figures are for one year, the $1,400, which in addition to the $600 we already got, that rounds it up to $2,000 per person. That's also pandemic emergency related. So it's certainly conceivable that this will all disappear after a year, just like back, I think, in 2011, 2012, or maybe 2010, 2011, we got some big givebacks in terms of Social Security payments. We got Social Security benefits, but the uh, Social Security taxes that were taken out were reduced by two percentage points in, in, for two years. That, that, that's, that's a lot of money. That was temporary, though. That, that went away. This, this could go away, but I'll, I'll believe that when I see it. And we certainly can't talk about all the details of the plan in this short current events section from the health insurance uh, expansion to pension, uh, insurance, the uh, earned income tax credit. But I want to ask you about inflation. You know, any article you read on the American Rescue Plan at some point says this will be great for everyone unless there's inflation. So do you have any insight into will there be inflation, what the, what the real dangers are? It's interesting. There are really two aspects to this. Let me, let me, let me try to touch on, on the first one. The first one is that this is expected to really boost the economy. Between this and the very quick rollout of the vaccines, the production of the vaccines, and hopefully people getting their shots, the economy looks like it's going to rebound more quickly rather than more slowly. And this at the same time that these uh, emergency funds and stuff are coming in and they're not being phased in mostly they're being dumped in in one fell swoop. I mean, I think some people have already started to get checks and stuff. And because of that, the projections for economic growth in the next year are through the roof. And that's what would drive the inflation. I think it was Goldman Sachs projected 8% growth in GDP for this year as against next year. Uh, And I did the calculation. And basically what that would do, it would be not only to pick the U.S. up on the growth path where it was prior to the pandemic, but it would put it at the same place that it would be uh, had there been no pandemic. In other words, that loss would all be recovered. 
that's a big deal. If it's eight percent, even if it's it's six percent, we 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 don't see those kinds of numbers within the U.S. That those are China level numbers. Uh, we don't we don't we don't see that over the course of a full year. Okay, so that that's there is then some possibility of inflation, but the economy has been in the doldrums, very sluggish for a quite long time. Really, since the Great Recession, yeah, and there hasn't been much a risk of high demand pulling up prices, which is the inflation. I mean, but the other see the other risk of inflation that people aren't talking about, in my view, enough, is what has happened to the U.S. debt, and this additional 1.9 trillion dollars just adds to that. Since the pandemic was declared a pandemic last year, right around one year ago. The U.S. government has added four and a half trillion dollars of debt. That's amazing because the debt, when the Great Recession began, like beginning of 2008, the the debt total since the you know since 1776 or the first year they were able to borrow, the debt of the U.S. government was like nine trillion dollars, and then up to last year it hit 23.5 trillion dollars you know and that so it goes up from 23.5 to, to, to 28 in the space of one year so a tremendous amount of this borrowing has occurred you're following these numbers all beginning with the great recession and then since I mean the US economy has just basically been living on borrowed funds now for a very long time going on 13 years or so that that's why the U.S. economy hasn't crashed, and that's what the 1.9 trillion dollars is going to allow it not to crash. The problem is, if there is any resumption of inflation, that will boost interest rates. And once interest rates start to go up, the U.S. Treasury and probably the U.S. economy with it is really behind the eight ball. I mean, it's one thing to finance the debt service, make the interest payments on nine trillion in debt. So how, how do they pay their nine trillion in debt? Well, they take new debt, you know, nine trillion dollars. Okay, so you're just rolling it over, but you got to pay interest. Well, with interest rates, like nothing, because the economy has been so sluggish, etc. The interest payments are nothing. But now that we're talking about right at this moment, twenty-eight trillion. There's a big difference between that and, 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 and nine trillion. So even if it's only added to interest rates by like, you know, they went up by five percentage points, the Treasury had to borrow at five percentage points higher, you're talking about all oh, another trillion and a half in interest payments per year. So I mean that that's the longer term consequences is like, you know, all all this free money is good. But, you know, the fact that it's, it's going to things like protecting families in need, that's all good. But it's, it's not a way to run an economy. So although the American Rescue Plan has uh, broad support amongst the American people, including a majority of Republican voters, um, all of the Republicans in the House and Senate voted against it. And some are some people are suggesting that this is going to give the Democrats, say, an advantage in the midterms or that, that maybe even that was the major intention behind the package to be able to say, look, we saved you all from uh, this re- economic destruction and the Republicans were against it and you got a check in the mail from us. So do you, you know, Andrew, do you have thoughts about whether that's going to work for the Democrats or whether that was even one of their principal motivations behind this? Right. I mean, I don't know that there's one motivating strategy, but I mean, if there's not, they've just lucked into something or had very good fortune to luck into it. But I mean, not only is it the case that every Republican in the House and every Republican in the Senate voted against giving cash to people. Uh, I mean, this is like universal, close to universal freebies for everybody which is always more popular. So Social Security and Medicare programs remain very popular, even while welfare, so-called, is uh, denigrated because universal programs are thought to be, like, good. They're for for me, but not for the other people. Well, this is basically for for everybody across the board, except at the the higher levels. So you, you you get that, and all the Republicans voted against it. But the really interesting thing is, this is all temporary one year, right? And there's an election coming up, midterm elections coming up next year. So there's going to be 
a fight or something, but there's going to be somebody who's going to like say, why don't we extend this? Why don't we make it permanent? And then you're going to have to like, it's not just a question of making something permanent. People have it in hand. It's a question of, are you going to vote to take it away from them? Right. It's plus, it's called loss aversion. Having something taken away for almost everybody is worse than not ever having it had it in the first place. So, I mean, what are the Republicans going to do? They're going to be kind of stuck, right? But the real question is, so what? I mean, th- th- this is, I think, the, the, the ultimate gamble of, of, of the Democratic Party. You know, they're going full Jacobin. It's like, okay, we can't beat Trump on the, the issue of white nationalism and racism and, 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 and xenophobia. You know, so if we can't lick them, let's, well, maybe not join them, but ignore them. And let's try to win people over on the basis of giving them economic goodies is that going to work? Is it the case that people are actually going to say, yes, let's reward the Democrats, even though they're on the side of these special interests and the blacks and the aliens and, and the Jewish uh, space laser people? Let's, let's reward them for giving us stuff. Why would you reward them? Because you expect more stuff from them? I, I, it, the theory behind it is not real clear to me. Well, it's been interesting to see Jacobin Magazine wrestle with the fact that their entire identity has been upended by the fact that the man they were attacking, Joe Biden, as being, you know, saying it was impossible for him to beat Trump and saying he was this neoliberal, centrist, moderate, you know, a senile failure, has delivered this, you know, rescue plan that is the most social democratic piece of legislation in decades. Um, and, you know, Biden did it and Sanders didn't do it and the Jacobinites didn't do it. So they're really faced with uh, an identity crisis, I think. They've been calling themselves socialist revolutionaries and now their politics are almost undifferentiable from centrist democratic politics. And I'm, I'm sure they're all like, their heads are spinning trying to figure out what they're going to make of this. But we will have to return to this topic some other time because we are out of time for this current event section. Up next, our discussion of the rate of profit, Heinrich, and a response to a criticism. So I think it was in 2013, the Monthly Review ran a piece by Michael Heinrich, which was basically like this deconstruction of the notion that Marx had a theory of the tendential fall in the rate of profit, sort of arguing that uh, there's, there's not a real theory there. There was a debate with some different people back and forth with Heinrich, but we authored a paper that was a critique of that whole debate and a critique of Heinrich and a robust defense of Marx. And that has not seen really any response from Heinrich or anyone in his camp over the past almost decade, with, with one exception of this piece that we have found by Frederick H. Pitts, who is a academic from the UK. Right, Frederick Harry Pitts. Okay, so the, the history of this is April 2013 in Monthly Review, uh, Michael Heinrich published Crisis Theory, The Law of the Tendency of the Profit Rate to Fall and Marx's Studies in the 1870s. And it was preceded by a lengthy, glowing introduction by the editors of Monthly Review, and our tape, our paper takes up both of those. Uh, our response, it was written by myself, Alan Freeman, Nick Potts, Alexei Gusev, and Brendan Cooney. The title of our response is The Unmaking of Marx's Capital, Heinrich's Attempt to Eliminate Marx's Crisis Theory. And the unmaking of Marx's capital, that's a reference to what was a famous book of the 1970s, The Making of Marx's Capital by Roman Rostovsky, two volumes uh, tracing the evolution and development of Marx's political economy. The paper in which uh, Frederick Harry Pitts took on our critique of Heinrich's paper is called Creative Industries value theory, and Michael Heinrich's new reading of Marx. Uh, so his paper, I had never seen it before. Andrew mentioned it recently. Oh, someone actually did respond to our paper. We should look into it. So I read over it, and it's it's horrible. I mean, it's I was 
sort of ready to, for some substantive engagement with like the main points in the paper and Pitts doesn't do any of that. He skirts over, he doesn't even bring up any of the really substantive parts of our paper instead dances around the surface and deals with some less important aspects of the paper and sort of superficially characterizes them and then in a way that allows him to sort of blow them off really quickly. So it's hard to even figure out how to engage with that because it's not like a honest substantive engagement with the ideas. At the same time, it's the only thing that's been written in response to our paper from someone who's from this Heinrich King. Right. I want to pick up on this thing about his tactics and he skirts around the surface and so forth. What he basically does is to, instead of saying we present evidence and we present arguments to the effect that he characterizes everything we do as a claim, which he can just dismiss because he thinks it's absurd or you know, well, that's their view. I have a different view. So he, he manages by failing to inform the reader that we've produced textual evidence and we've produced interpretive arguments and so forth. By not telling the readers that, he manages to turn everything into a matter of opinion and perspective. So the whole guts of our paper gets, gets ignored. So what we're going to do is talk about what are the substantive aspects of our paper that didn't get taken up? And then we'll deal with Mr. Harry Pitts's attempt at engagement. Right. Okay. So Heinrich's main claim is Marx didn't really have a crisis theory rooted in the law of the indential fall and the rate of profit. It's not a law. Marx had doubts about it. Uh, he tried and tried to prove the so-called law and he continually failed. And what we say is, why is Heinrich saying that Marx failed to prove the law and then shall fall on the rate of profit? Well, this is rooted in an error that Heinrich makes as to what the law is, what its function is. Heinrich interprets the law as an assertion on Marx's part that the rate of profit must fall in the long run under all circumstances, come what may. He's not alone in thinking that, but it's an error. So what we try to do is to rescue what the law actually says and what its function is. And what Marx was doing was looking at what he and Ricardo, David Ricardo before him and Adam Smith, they, they all said, look, you know, the rate of profit does tend to fall. OK, that was understood to be an empirical fact. And then the question is, OK, how do you explain this? And that is what Marx says is the law, his explanation. He says the economists, you know, Smith, Ricardo, they perceived the phenomenon, they perceived the fall in the rate of profit, but they could not explain it. And here I can explain it. And it's very easy to explain on the basis of my value theory. Okay. And that's the law. The law is that value theoretic explanation of why. Uh, the uh, rate of profit tends to fall. You know, I think that that, that argument is, <laughs> I think, really powerful because it, I just want to highlight the fact that Marx was proud of the fact that he was able to explain something that Ricardo and Smith couldn't explain. And he thought that he had done something unique in theory that allowed him to explain this thing that was not explainable by um, his predecessors, right? And so even if you like deconstruct like this or that passage from volume three of Capital and you think that, you know, the manuscripts show that you this or that isn't as conclusive, the fact that Marx was able to clearly explain the relationship of profit to surplus value, that is like the theoretical insight that allows one to understand how the rate of profit could fall because of uh, and change in the organic composition of capital. Like it just, it's like inherent to the theoretical breakthrough that Marx had, that that is an aspect of that theory. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me, yeah. It's like you have a theoretical breakthrough, it allows something to be explained, and there's not much you can do by like playing with a textual interpretation that is going to change the fact that the theory can explain something. If you have this understanding of the relationship of surplus value to profit and what the equation for the rate of profit is, then 
clearly like changes in the organic composition of capital can cause the rate of profit to fall. Right. It, it, it's weird because most people tend to think of science, scientific explanation as you come up with certain assumptions, you make a prediction of a phenomenon, an event happening, and then you go and test that. But here we got something that's not structured like that. There, there is scientific explanation that regularly that, that operates in this manner. You've got the phenomenon. You're not, you don't have to predict the phenomenon. What, what you have to do is understand how the phenomenon comes about. So you've got a, a certain starting point, you've got the phenomenon, and then you need an explanatory principle. This is called by various names, abduction or inference to the best explanation. So what you're doing is trying to move from a certain starting point, like there's accumulation of capital, labor-saving technological change. Uh, on the one hand, there's the fall on the rate of profit. That's the phenomenon. On the other, how do you bring two together? You put forward an explanatory principle so that when we got the capital accumulating, labor-saving technological change, we got a fall on the rate of profit. We can explain the fall on the rate of profit by those other things, given this explanatory principle. That's that's known as abduction or inference to the best explanation. So it's, it's very common in, in, in science, but, but you know, people who have this idea that everything is meant to be prediction just seem to, to not be aware of it. And in the, in the case of the Marx's law of tendential fall in the rate of profit, you got Heinrich saying, okay, you know, it's a prediction. Well, he doesn't say it's a prediction. He says it's a failed series of attempts again and again to prove that the rate of profit must fall in the long run under all circumstances come what may. So he says that, but he is by no means alone. And it is not only the the opponents of Marx, it's the people, most of the people who think they like Marx are also thinking of this law as a law that says that the rate of profit must fall in the long run, come what may. Marx never says anything similar to that. I mean, there was real negative reaction to our paper in some quarters, because when people get told that what they're calling Marx's law and the whole kind of debate that they're having has nothing to do with what Marx said. Does the rate of profit have to fall in the long run, come what may? No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. You know, well, whatever. That's not unimportant, but it has nothing to do with what Marx's law is. And then when people hear that, they get really pissed off. You know, I mean, I had Duncan Foley tell me, he says, well, you know, yeah, you, you might be right, but, you know, what has excited people and gotten them interested in talking about the law of potential fall and the rate of profit is this idea that the rate of profit, you know, must fall in the long run. So it's like, we don't want you to like dispel our illusions about what Marx said. We like this fake version of Marx that we can <laughs> debate one way or the other. I mean, he didn't put it that way, but that's that's what was hmm. going on. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, well, people, if they're aware of controversies around the rate of profit, they're probably aware of either the Okishio theorem, which we've talked about before, which says that the rate of profit can't fall because of organic composition of capital uh, changing. But this is a different issue. This is just whether or not the countervailing tendencies are able to forestall the rate of profit for this or that reason. And that's when people get bogged down to this sort of um, difficult debate about predicting the long-term trajectory of the rate of profit and trying to prove that the counter-tendencies can never uh, overcome the downward fall in the rate of profit. Right. That's what they're concerned with. That is not what Marx concerned himself with. Right, right. And he, again and again, you know, just said, well, you know, in this case, in that case, it could be a rise in the rate of surplus value that would, you know, offset, more than offset, the increase in the composition of capital. And Heinrich says, aha, aha, he fails to prove it. He's admitting error. No, he's not admitting error. You haven't understood what the law is meant to do. Dude. Well, I think that that's uh, useful for people useful for people to hear because most of the literature you get stuck in these these arguments about the counter tendencies and and this sense that the the so called predictive value theory can't hold together. Should we should we move to the other points of the paper? 
Right. So that's one of the three main things that we do in the paper. The second has to do with a really unusual claim that Heinrich makes, which is, look, it's not only the fact that Marx's law fails because of the counter tendency of the rate of surplus value to rise, the law itself or the law as such in Marx's initial presentation in chapter 13 of um, volume three, he says that, that that also fails. Okay, so it's not that it's just the counter tendencies. What is Heinrich's argument as to why the law itself fails? Well, he, he, he makes this claim that when Marx says that a rising rate of uh, surplus value is a counteracting factor or counter tendency, he's only referring to increases in the rate of surplus value caused by lengthening the working day or more intensification of labor. Heinrich claims that when Marx talks about the rising rate of surplus value as a counter tendency, he is excluding increases in the rate of surplus value caused by the technical progress, which cheapen workers' means of subsistence and therefore cheapen the, the value of labor power and therefore tend to uh, increase uh, surplus value relative to variable capital and the, therefore tend to increase the, the rate of surplus value. So increases in the rate of surplus value caused by technical change, according to Heinrich, that is not a, a counteracting factor, that is part of the law itself. And Marx was unable to prove, just as a function of the law itself, that the increases in the rate of surplus value caused by technical change do not offset uh, in increase in the composition of capital caused by technical change. So he says the law itself fails. Basically, like the, the counteracting tendency is inside of the law itself or something is the, what he's saying. And so it's indeterminate how the rate of profit will change over time. Yes, even without considering counter tendencies, the law itself is, inter is indeterminate because the law itself has two things going on. The composition of capital is increasing, but the rate of surplus value is also increasing. Um, I mean, this is, this is the first time I had ever, the first and last time I'd ever seen that argument. Uh, hopefully it will be the last time because it, what we do is we just quote Marx and, and Heinrich is completely wrong. He specifically in chapter 14 of volume three, he looks at the counteracting factors and he talks about the uh, things that uh, cause a rise in the rate of surplus value. And he doesn't only talk about lengthening the working day and speed up intensification of labor, he also talks about the things that create relative surplus value, you know, the cheapening of the wage goods, and therefore the uh, increase in surplus value relative to variable capital as a result of technological change. It's right, it's right there in the text of, of, of chapter 14. And once he gets done talking about the, the relative surplus value, the increase in rate of surplus value caused by technological change, he says, right after that, he says, okay, these are the counteracting tendencies which bring about a rise in the rate of surplus value. There's, in that section of the, the paper, there's another very important uh, thing we point out. You know, Marx produces this argument that the rising rate of surplus value can only compensate or offset the rise in the organic composition of capital to a limited degree because, how, okay, uh, two workers working for 12 hours a day can't supply the same amount of surplus value as 24 workers each working two hours, uh, even if they were able to live on air. In other words, so they were paid nothing, okay? It's just two workers, 12 hours a day, that's 24 hours, 24 workers, each working two hours, that's 48 hours. Just, you know, there's just no way that when you cut down on the amount of workers relative to the capital investment, you know, there's just no way after a point uh, when you keep doing that, no matter how low the wages fall, you know, I'm out, no matter how much workers work, there's no way you can offset the fact that there's less surplus value because there's just fewer workers. And Heinrich says, well, look, that's not even true 
because, you know, there's, uh, let me see how he puts it, according to uh, Heinrich, that's only correct if the capital constant and variable necessary to employ the two workers is of an amount at least as great as that required to employ 24 workers before. That, as the paper explains, is just implying that capital is being disaccumulated, that you have less capital being invested. Right. If, if, if the capital is not at least as great, that means that instead of having a process of accumulation, which brings about technological change and a fall in the rate of profit, which is the case that Marx was talking about, accumulation, bringing about techno accompanied by technological change, okay, and the rate of profit falls. Well, Heinrich is saying, well, you know, that's only correct if you got accumulation. Well, yeah, dude, but that's the case that Marx is dealing with, <laughs> you know, so you, 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 you can't impugn the law because it's only correct for the case which it deals with. I don't know what else to say. It seems pretty straightforward to me. Do you want to go on to the next point? Okay. There are two basic points. Point A is that he says Marx's crisis theory, you know, is not complete because there's really no law because Marx just had all these doubts about the law, okay? And what are these doubts about the law? Well, all these times Marx admits that under this case, rate of surplus value could rise so much that the rate of profit rises. And here, the rate of profit rises. So Marx is clearly flailing about and failing again and again and again to prove the law, and he knows it. So says Heinrich, okay? But the point is, this is flailing about admission of theoretical error and that you can't figure things out. Only if one subscribes to Heinrich's mistaken misinterpretation of what Marx's law is. When you understand that it's actually an explanation of a phenomenon that is not saying that the rate of profit must fall in the long run under all circumstances, come what may, there's no admission of error. I mean, he doesn't you know, or gee, I've got doubts. He doesn't have text where Marx says, gee, I have doubts about the law. Gee, I really can't prove what I'm trying to prove. Quite the opposite. Again and again, Marx is saying, this has been proven. What has been proven? The actual law, not, 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 not this straw man version. So the fact that Marx keeps saying, you know, this has been proven, and at the same time, he's saying, look, under this case, the rate of profit could rise. The fact that Marx says both together, if you adhere to decent norms of interpretation and you try to make sense of both things together, it goes totally against what Heinrich is saying. Okay, The two things together mean that Heinrich's interpretation of the law is, is just plain false. And as a consequence of that, the alleged flailing about by Marx, his alleged doubts, his admission of error, none of that holds up. What's going on is completely different. Marx is saying the law has been proven and something that does not contradict that in any way. In this case, the rate of profit could rise. And in the other case, the rate of profit could rise and so forth. No contradiction. And, and then the paper talks about various moments in Marx's correspondence when he refers to all of the capital as being, and as in not just the first volume, but all the volumes as representing a theoretically complete project, talking about issues being resolved, even though they weren't like publication ready, that he had resolved the theoretical issues and felt the things held together, which is contrary to what Heinrich and others tried to argue that he didn't publish these books because he hadn't resolved all the theoretical issues. This is something that Marx wrote in a letter to a friend, uh, Frederick Engels, in mid-1865. Uh, he says, all the problems have been resolved in the first three books, the theoretical books, including what became volume three. But I cannot bring myself to send anything off to the publisher until I have the whole thing in front of me. Whatever shortcomings they may have, my writings are an artistic whole, and this can only be achieved through, the, through my practice of never having things printed until I have them in front of me in their entirety. So what this indicates is in 1867, roughly two years later, volume one appeared. And so clearly by that point, 
all of the I's were, were, were dotted and all of the T's were crossed in terms of the theoretical completeness, not the stylistic polishing, but in terms of theoretical completeness, it was all worked out to Marx's satisfaction. And basically, we got several other quotes over the next uh, 12 years indicating this, the same thing. And, and then, then there is one other thing that we do in that last section, which is very important in terms of what Heinrich supposedly has shown, because supposedly, you know, he's got this privileged access to the new complete writings of Marx, the new mega, and he's poured over the manuscripts. And what he's supposedly found is that Engels basically concocted a law out of just scraps of text here and there. And, you know, there, there was no law in Marx. It was a deep fake. Yeah. And we, we look at not what Heinrich says or what he wants us to believe, but what he actually shows that Engels did and how it differs from the manuscripts that Marx left him. And it, it boils down to the following. Engels gave the final chapter of the discussion of the law and then shall fall in the rate of profits, three chapters. He gave the final chapter a title. Oh, my God. And he condensed this part. He condensed it with abridgments. He made rearrangements and he divided it into four subsections. Oh, my God. That's certainly warrant for saying there is no law of the fallen rate of profit in Marx, that it was all concocted by Engels. No. What, what, what Engels did is what any good editor does. It's called stylistic editing, and that's exactly what Engels called it. Yeah. But Heinrich relies on this authority as a person who has the documents in front of him in German, and he has a certain mystique about him in some circles because people think he has some privileged access to understanding the manuscripts, and so therefore they give him this benefit of the doubt in his, in his reading of Marx. And the paper is trying to suggest that that is not appropriate, that people should be free to think critically about what he's writing and to yeah, quest, question this sort of authority he's claiming. Yeah, because even in even with regard to text that is available to everybody in German, in translation, Heinrich makes some really gross errors. What the law of the potential fall on the rate of profit is, what is considered a counteracting factor, is it all increases in the rate of surplus value or only some. He makes some really bad errors that are not hard at all to show that they're just completely horrible errors. And then he, he does the same with something I wrote. It just completely mangles what, what, what I said and, and the, the purpose of it and everything. So the, the paper points out those things. So the idea that somebody is a great interpreter because he knows German and he's got privileged access to some manuscripts, that, that just doesn't cut it. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. 
We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So a paper gets published in 2013 and there's pretty much radio silence since then except for this paper by Frederick Harry Pitts from the University of Bath. So one of the things that struck me the most was somewhere in the introduction of his paper, he thanks so-and-so for their funding of his research project and talked about this being part of a dissertation or something. And I thought, how is, how, what? Like, I'm not an academic, but I just assume that people who are academics like have some standard of scholarship but this is like such a, it's such a half-assed attempt to, to deal with what our paper talks about and doesn't deal with any of the points that we just discussed. It's sort of this it's a fluffy dismissal in order to like, I don't know, like you had a checkbox, like in order to, for me to talk, do this stuff with value form theory and Heinrich, I need to like address some criticism. So I'm just going to rush through this really quick and then it looked like I dealt with critics. That's all I can I, that's all I can make of it in terms of the piss poor attempt he's done here. Yeah, I, I think that that's it is, you know, he's got to make a show of taking other literature criticisms into account. But whatever discipline he, he's in, whatever school he was in, they don't really care that much. Right. So uh, he does that. But the other thing that, that, that we have to understand that goes on with these people, they don't necessarily really believe what they're saying. This is a show of strength. This is dominance academic politics. They're showing that they can get away with this. Despite what you say, despite your critiques, you know, and you pouring over the manuscripts and the texts and comparing this to that and the precision of your, you know, critique of Heinrich, none of this matters because we can keep saying what we say, act like you haven't touched it, you know, you haven't laid a glove on it, and people will like what we say, and that's what matters. That's what is being communicated, I think, and how conscious they are, well, one can only speculate. Well, should we move through some of his points? We'll talk about some of the things that Pitts does say in response to us. Uh, we're not going to be able to get to everything. We've prepared more than we can get to, but if anybody out there has doubts, People think, well, you know, he said this, and they didn't respond to that, and you know, it looks like they don't have a response. Well, trust trust us, we have a response, and if we, we need to, we'll, we'll engage with uh, every single uh, thing, because um, uh, I think his response to us is just atrocious and uh, unethical. Pitts says, I adopt the position of infidelity and incredulity towards, quote, what Marx really meant. Right. And as is usually the case, this is just BS. You know, when people say that Pitts has definite views about what Marx really meant, and he makes several strong claims about what Marx really meant. So, you know, he's trying to have his cake and eat it, too. Right. So for you or for a paper or spends a long time trying to make a textual case for what Marx is saying provides like uh, standards for how you interpret text. He can dismiss that and say, well, it's, yeah, this is like a fool's quest to talk about what Marx really meant. But then he can go on later in his paper and argue what he thinks Marx meant by something when it, when it suits his purpose. 
Yeah, I mean, for instance, he says he says what we call Marxist theory is a fabrication of our making. You, you can't say that unless you're implicitly claiming that you know what Marx really meant. But how about this idea of the incompleteness of Marx's text? I mean, we kind of got at that already talking about our paper, but Pitts makes this argument that that we hear before, you know, the Marx, the Marx didn't publish everything, so it's incomplete. Yeah. I mean, to give you an example of how, how Pitts operates, he writes, Kleiman and his allies criticized Heinrich and the new reading for suggesting that Marx's work was incomplete and in need of critical reconstruction. No, we don't criticize him for suggesting that. We criticize their claim that Marx lacks a complete crisis theory on the grounds that it's just not correct. And we provide ample evidence and arguments to show that it's incorrect. So it's not an abstract debate over whether it's proper to uh, allege that it's incomplete and in need of critical reconstruction. The point is they need to prove their case and they don't have proved it. And we've shown that they haven't proved it. But he avoids all of that, right? Turns into abstraction about whether it's proper for them to claim that versus our, you know, alleged uh, attempt to shut them down from making that suggestion. H how about this? They claim that Marx planned to release the first volume of Capital only when the whole theory was complete, and that suggests that the publication of Volume One proves to us that Marx's system was complete. But according to Pitts, this overlooks the tremendous publisher pressure under which Marx labored. He had deadlines to meet. Okay. Well, we don't only claim that Marx planned to release the first volume. We produce evidence, some of which you know we've read out, from letters over a span of 12 years where Marx basically says this. So it's not just a claim. There is evidence. There is argument. There's interpretation of those letters. As a matter of scholarship, anybody who wants to dispute what we say needs to deal with our evidence and our arguments, and Pitts doesn't do that. And what he does is, oh, well, Marx labored under pressure. Of, he had deadlines to meet. Think about this one. Marx knew he had these deadlines to meet. He, he was always, you know, in, in the situation of, of, of being too late with everything. Okay? But then... He knows he's got these deadlines, and he writes to a friend. He's not saying this to the public. He writes to a friend of his and says, you know, look, I know I got these deadlines, but screw the deadlines, he's saying in effect. I ain't going to let anything be published until I got the whole thing in front of me, and it's all worked out. Then, and only then, will I publish something. So the deadlines argument, it actually goes against this Heinrich Pitt's line, it, do, it doesn't help them at all. So he also says, for Kleinman et al., Marx's work is complete and beyond modification or dispute. Engels' contribution to how capital appeared is, Kleinman asserts, a neutral act of editorship, whereas Engels channels the true Marx, Heinrich, or anyone else with which the authors disagree cannot. This exceptionality rests on a series of argumentative leaps. Um, does he go into what the argumentative leaps are? Absolutely not. No. What, what, he, what he does is what he often does uh, in his paper. He says that we say something, and then he quotes Carcady and, and, and Roberts or Sam Williams or something and responds to something that they've said. Mm -hmm. Okay, but, but not, it doesn't respond to the point that we've made, and that's what he does here. Okay, there, he, he, there's supposedly some argumentative leaps. He doesn't identify even a single such leap because yeah. there aren't any. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the charge is it's just a smear. Marx's work is beyond modification or dispute. We, we, we never said anything remotely similar to that. He provides a citation to our paper at this point. But no quote of what we said and what we wrote. I looked at it, you know, page 13, 14. It doesn't say anything about Marx's work being uh, beyond modification or dispute. What it says is when Engels edited part three of volume three of Capital on the law of potential fall and the rate of profit, the changes that he made were not substantive, but were limited to stylistic editing. That's not saying that Marx's work is beyond modification uh, or dispute. And... This has nothing to do with channeling the true marks as if it's some sort of like summoning the spirits or something, you know, some spiritual thing. It, it has to do with 
Engels having adhered to good standards of scholarship as an editor. We didn't carve out an exception for Engels or anybody else to violate standards of scholarship. We're saying he didn't violate standards of scholarship. So there's no exception or exceptionality that we're carving out. And so there's no argumentative leaps meant to justify that. He also writes, the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall issued not from Marx's sense of the theoretical completeness, according to Heinrich. Rather, it stems from the manner in which Engels edited, abridged, and compiled the scattered material that came to constitute Capital Volume 3. This enshrined Marx's thoughts into a, quote, law within the framework of a total, quote, theory of crisis that did not exist ahead of editing. I mean, this is what we sort of mentioned before, this idea that the whole concept of a law is something created posthumously by Engels through his editing. Right. Well, at this point, Pitts is just saying, well, according to Heinrich, but he endorses everything Heinrich says. In any case, this claim that Engels enshrined Marx's thoughts into a law within the framework of a total theory of crisis that did not exist ahead of editing is just plain false. The idea that Marx developed the law of the potential fall and rate of profit was not Engels' invention. Marx himself said exactly this again and again. He regularly referred to the law as a law. On more than one occasion, he said this is the most important law in political economy. And in a manuscript that became part of volume three, he said, because of the great importance that this law has for capitalist production, one might say that it forms the mystery around whose solution the whole of political economy since Adam Smith revolves. Close quote. So this is not Engels' invention. It's Marx. Well, so, so Pitts also goes into what is a common trope, or that the idea that there is a real Marx is a fiction. He says, Klein and et al. advocate what they call Marx's, quote, own theories, which he puts own theories in scare quotes. This implies that the reader should accept the interpretation of Marx given by Kleinman et al. as the authentic ap- appearance of Marx's word in the present day. At the same time, they deny others their own interpretation, Heinrich included. I don't recall anywhere in the paper or elsewhere, anyone arguing that people can't have other interpretations of Marx, just that those interpretations should be considered next to what Marx actually says in his writing. Right. And everybody's entitled to their own interpretation. They're not entitled to have it be considered correct just because they've said it. And that's that's what bothers these people. In other words, they, they want it to be that any interpretation is as good as any other's, but you know, they're, they're entitled to like there's, there's more. Well, they can like it more. But what, what we do say is, you know, yeah, I mean, Heinrich, his interpretation is just not good. It, it, it's, it's, it's riddled with errors, both factual in terms of the te- textual evidence and methodologically. It's it, not up to the standards. Now, of course, Pitt says what Klein and et al. call Marx's own theories are a fabrication of their making, not Marx's. The authentic word they purport to channel is a figment of their own interpretation, not that he has backed that up by some sort of interpretive argument that can actually deal with what uh, our paper talks about. Right. I mean, it's a very serious charge mm-hmm. that we fabricated a theory and taken something and then attributed it to Marx. That's a very, very serious charge. But there's zero evidence that he provides. There's zero argument that he provides, just as you said. We, we actually provide in, in this paper and, and elsewhere between us, you know, and Alan Freeman and Nick Potts, we provided ample textual evidence and arguments in support of our interpretation of Marx's crisis theory. Again, this idea that it's some kind of religious spiritual thing where we're purporting to channel some authentic word is just completely uncalled for, completely false. Our interpretation is based on the wealth of textual evidence that we provide and are widely accepted, uh, the, the methods of interpretation we employ, which are widely accepted. It's not based on channeling spirits or anything like that. Um, there's this quote from Pitts's paper, and he says, Kleinman claims that the new reading is an attempt to poison the horse of Marxists engaged in the serious study of Marx's own work and research based on it. Uh, let me let me quickly provide the context. Somebody wrote a criticism of our, our paper and said, you know, why do you have to discuss like what Marx said? Do you, why do you need this uh, Marxology? Why don't you just get on with what you think without regard to whether it's Marx? And I said, this is like asking a jockey 
to just get on with the race, ignoring the fact that people are trying to poison his horse. Now, this is not what Pitts said it is, which is a claim that the new reading, in other words, Heinrich interpretation is an attempt to poison the horse. It's not about what he thinks, what Heinrich thinks, it's about how he behaves. It's a critique of his behavior, the the way he attacks Marx and tries to unmake Marx's capital to turn Marx's theory into an untheory. That's an attempt to poison the horse. That's not Heinrich's own theory, by the way, or his own new reading, right? It's a, it, it's an attempt to make Marx disappear. That's what we have an objection to. For, there's, there's this issue of Heinrich's perceived uh, authority as a interpreter because of his access to German texts. So Pitts gets into this a little bit in the paper, dealing with our criticism of that, and he writes at one point, the privileged position of Marx's original German writing in Heinrich's new reading is subject to criticism from Kleinman et al. They contend that, quote, the Anglophone public is often intimidated by the pronouncements of German Marx scholars, end quote. They pinpoint the, quote, lamentable inaccessibility quote, of the complete German Marx to the Anglophone public. It's not clear to me from this quote of his what uh, his argument really is here or how that relates to what our paper is saying about this. Well, first of all, he's trying to say that the privileged position of the original German writings is, we we, we question it, we we, we criticize it. What's his evidence? We, we, We don't criticize the privileged position of the original German writings, that would be nuts. The man wrote in German, the German text in which he wrote has a privileged position as against any any translation. Of course, that's not what we criticize. We criticize people who have access to manuscripts that others don't have access to and who lord their knowledge of German over people to intimidate them and, and keep them from questioning and challenging the interpretation of these supposed experts. Okay, that's that that's that's not about the texts. That's about these people's behavior. So talk about their intimidating behavior, dude. Don't 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 make it like we're we're questioning whether the original texts are more important than than than, than the translations. That's nuts. Kleinman and his collaborators complained that Heinrich's conclusions draw from manuscripts to which few others have access. Unless conversant with this body of work, they contend one cannot check the manuscripts against the original publications. Thus, Heinrich's conclusions should not be accepted simply on his say-so. But why should they be rejected on Kleinman's say-so? On the basis given, there would be nothing that Heinrich could do to convince others of the consistency of what he is saying. Opponents could offer the excuse of the German providence of Marx's complete works at will, however impressive Heinrich's argument, end quote. And basically, he's saying that because we say that the conclusions should not be accepted on his say so, that we're therefore implying that they have to, what he says has to be rejected on our say so. Okay? That is a nutty argument. It's a glaring either or fallacy. You either accept it on Heinrich's say so, or you accept, or you reject it on, on, on our say so. Uh, hey, what about looking at the evidence and the arguments and evaluating who has the evidence on their side, who has the arguments on their side? I'm against anybody taking anything on faith on anybody's say-so. Why he tries to impute that to us or to act like, you know, well, you know, you just need to, you know, accept who you want to accept, that's just horrible. It's, it's a complete attack on reason and scholarship. Why does he even imply that, 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 that we would say such a thing? It's because he does not want to get into the real heart of the matter, which is show us the evidence, make the arguments, defend what you and your camp have said, you know, your reading of the evidence against counter evidence and against counter argument. Okay. And it's not just like choosing to adopt something because you find it helpful. You, you can do that whenever you, you want in your spare time, but that's not scholarship. It's contrary to scholarship. It's contrary to standards of reason. It's it's really, really unethical. Yeah, there's just, just one more little bit here. Basically, uh, Pitts also says, gee, the, these are manuscripts that 
people who don't know German, they can't read, and if they haven't been published, not everybody has access. So what are you saying? You're saying that, like, you know, Heinrich has to shut up until they get published? No, he doesn't have to shut up. But either he could quite easily publish more than, like, two sentences that he quotes. He could put his quotes into a context where we could judge whether what he's saying makes sense of the text in context. Or if he doesn't do that, which he hasn't, what we're saying is readers take his arguments, but since he has not provided evidence that you can evaluate, don't just accept what he says. Okay? Don't accept anything without the evidence. And if he hasn't provided you with evidence, there is no rational ground for you to accept it. That's what we're saying. I mean, Pitts wants to make it, who do you like? Who do you trust? You know, how can you use this for your own benefit? You know, fun with Marx, you know, mix and match, you know, Mr. Potato Head, different little costumes, Marx, you know, put a bow tie on them, throw out the law of the potential fall on the rate of profit, you know, all that kind of stuff. Just, it's horrible. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 